I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And welcome to Pilot Club. Drew, how are you feeling about episode six? I'm feeling good. I feel like this one could be the best yet. Yep. Best ever. I think this could be the one that breaks us breaks us wide open in terms of the fan base. Oh, I think that's right. I think uh, that's right. The fans have been waiting. <laughs> They've been clamouring for this. Uh, and I'm hoping this, this is the one that's going to go viral. I think so. I, ju- I just I think feel so. it. I just feel yeah, it. So that's dangerous terminology in this, this day and age, though, yeah, isn't it? Viral in a good way. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Okay. So this week we've got... Um, Three really interesting high-profile shows, all of which have a bit of a futuristic bent, um, and two of which are actually um, straight-out science fiction, both directed by quite well-known film directors. So we're going to get going with the series I May Destroy You, which has been one of the most talked-about series of the last couple of weeks. And actually, I'd heard about it a month or two ago um, and wasn't sure when it would come out in Australia, but fortunately it's arrived here pretty quickly. So, Drew, do you want to talk us through it? Well, I think what's interesting about this show is that it has arrived in Australia several weeks, if not if not months, post the hype of its its British release and even yeah, its right. release in the United States. So, so maybe so, I'm wrong. For some reason, I thought it was going to come out here even later. But well, yeah. yeah. So I think, firstly, the interesting thing about watching this show is you're watching it, I suppose, through the through the framework of its of its real adulation mm. as well. So. Going into it with very high expectations. Now, do you think it's fair to say it's been one of the most critically acclaimed shows of the year? I think it has been, and I think it's definitely the show that's probably captured the zeitgeist in a in in probably the most um, I suppose thoroughgoing way. We had a discussion beforehand ways. to make sure we both knew how to pronounce zeitgeist, <laughs> so we're going to use that word quite a bit during we are, this episode. We are. I'll, I'll make that every fifth my, my every fifth word will be zeitgeist. <laughs> Family is unconditional, <laughs> so it, it is a zeitgeist show. Nice. Now, I think. We might discuss later why it why it might have captured yep. the zeitgeist in a lot of in a lot of different senses. Mm. But what was interesting as well was that, despite it being quite a prominent and and hyped show, I wasn't really that aware what what happens in the show itself. Mm. So, the show is a comedy slash drama. It's an unusual um, genre hybrid in some ways, and it was that that caught me a little bit off guard. It's going it's, for a very uneasy, queasy, elliptical tone, isn't yeah, it? It the, shifts quite dramatically the, the from tone, moment to moment. The tone is dramatic and I, I knew it was a show about a woman and her I suppose reckoning with the consequences and implications of a of a sexual assault. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to be treated. Mm. And it's treated in a very un, unusual way like you say, quite quite elliptical and mm. quite especially I if suppose, you just watch the pilot, right? Yes, especially absolutely. the pilot by itself. Absolutely, and not knowing exactly where it was going, the pilot does take you slightly off guard. It, mm. it was, it's very unclear exactly where, it, where it's going, and it does lead you, I suppose, to its, to its real revelation right at the end. So I think... Should we it, talk it is, a little bit more just about the key events of the pilot and what happens with the main character? Yeah, so the, the pilot charts, I suppose, the story of, of uh, its, central, its central character. Now, the central character is, is played by... Michaela Cole, and she also created, wrote, co-directed, and executive produced the show. So a real overachiever there. So it's a, so it's, so it's a genuine genuine auteurism, genuine yeah. televisual auteurism. That's right, yep. and so very she, much her vision. And I realised that I'd seen her in, in Black Mirror. I recognised yes. her. Yeah, she she does have a striking familiarity. She has a very striking look. Yep. I think she has a a, a very compelling on screen presence, and which is cultivated here with really eccentric and interesting fashion choices and costuming. Absolutely, absolutely. So she she plays a character called Arabella. And she plays a, a pseudo-celebrity, so a Twitter star-turned-novelist mm. who's already found fame with her book Chronicles of a Fed-Up Millennial. And she's, she's already fated 
as a millennial icon. Now, I wonder partly whether this is semi-autobiographical, mm. but it's it's nonetheless interesting. So in the pilot, we see her, I suppose, coping with the aftermath of fame and and coping with the, the sophomore slump. So trying to trying to recreate the magic of her first novel mm. in writing her second. And she's she faces a little bit of pressure from, I suppose, self-imposed pressure from the public as and well. I, and just to interject, I, I got the impression her first novel had been, it's a bit unclear, it was either written as a series of tweets or partly published on Twitter or both. Like it was a novel Twitter hybrid, which she's now trying to replicate or move away from. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't quite get a sense of... No. And but but it, there's some kind of Twitter novel combination going on isn't there that's right yep. and, the, and the show is very it doesn't really lay out lay it out for you yep. so much so it really sets you down right in the middle of mm. the action in media race and mm. you need to catch up and yep. even that that i suppose very brief description that i gave is not necessarily self-evident in watching the pilot no and, and something i mean it reminded me of a of a trend in i guess recent television for often short-form episodes or series with short-form episodes where there's a very disorienting or destabilising sense of place and time. So I'm thinking partly of the series Better Things. I'm thinking partly of The Girlfriend Experience based on the Steven Soderbergh film about a woman whose job consists in pretending to be a girlfriend, pretending to be a wife to wealthy clients. This has that same kind of decentered quality. So it opens in a very transitory space. It opens with her waiting for an Uber on her way back from Italy after finishing an on-again, well, not, uh, after the latest bout in an on-again, off-again tryst with a, a, a boyfriend she seems to have there. And that sets the tone, I guess, for the episode as a whole, where every space, every scene feels transitory, feels incomplete in an interesting way, feels provisional. It's, it's very hard to settle into it in a way that's kind of interesting. It's very restless kind of aesthetic, isn't it? It is, it is. And it, it I suppose, moves quite... quite um I suppose elliptically between places and yes. between characters, it introduces a lot of characters and doesn't really explain their relationship to each other. It, it feels a bit like it's kind of post-smartphone life, right? Like kind of fragmented space and time. Mm. Um, and I, I thought it actually felt a bit like an iPhone commercial or a smartphone, not in a bad way, but in that sense of just moving very rapidly in an impressionistic way between images yeah. and between sensations. And I think probably the most powerful and compelling thing about the show is it's lived in quality absolutely it, it yeah. does feel, embodied yeah it does feel like a, a slice of life and yep. a slice of a character's life it feels it has a very clear sense of the the area of london what's yep. set in i believe it's hackney um maybe it's a I, i'm not exactly sure what the characteristics of Hackney are. Are you a Hackney expert? I, I'm not a Hackney expert yet. We, we actually did um, a case study of London when we were in, but Drew and I were in Year 12 together. And I, I seem to remember something about Hackney, but I, it's gone. <laughs> it's been expunged along I mean, with everything else. Yeah. But uh, it seems like it's it's a maybe a sort of grungy student area that's yep. that's just on the verge of being gentrified. And, 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 and when you say lived in, I mean, there's such a strong sense of the body and her body as well. And there are times when it almost, like the series plays as a bit of a riposte to, I guess, especially white bourgeois ideas of sexuality, right? There's people are queer without any real explanation or need to, you know, signal it as such. There are polyamorous couples. There's a very diverse swathe of bodily pleasures and sensations that percolate throughout the series, right? Everybody's body feels very vivid and very present. Yes, absolutely. Which, which kind of leads on to what happens in the final part of the episode. Absolutely. So the character the main character Arabella seems like she's 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 quite a uh, I guess party girl. She's yep. quite 
she's quite loose with her feelings, with her emotions, and in some and, ways... And I don't think the series isn't critiquing that. I mean, again, it feels like her... Again, this is smartphone thing. Her feelings and affects and sensations seem dispersed, like everyone around her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it gives her a real endearing quality and mm. characteristic as well. She, Despite the fact she's found fame, she doesn't have tickets on herself. She's quite humble and, and quite insecure. And there's, there's, some, there's a realism to her to her portrayal and a realism to the to the, the, the setting of the scene and her friendship and the friendship dynamics, which, which really works quite effectively. And yeah, the friends but, are compelling. But, yeah, before even the... Um, I suppose the the central I suppose complication is mm. established. We've established quite an endearing central set of relationships. And you could maybe say too that you know her fame is fleeting in the way that so much Twitter fame or social media fame is. So you feel that she's got some kind of cachet, but you're not. It's it's precarious, right? Like mm. you, there's no sense how much longer she'll be able to maintain it. There's no sense of whether her second book will be as effective as the first. There's a there's a kind of precariousness to all. The moments that's kind of exhilarating, but also a little bit makes her a little bit vulnerable as well. Absolutely, and Billy, I'm intrigued. Why do you think this show, it's this show more than any others that we've profiled, has captured, I suppose, the public mood, the public yep. sentiment around the world? Yep. Well, I think you know, firstly, the way it deals with sexual assault mm. is really original. We'll come onto that in a moment. The last scene. I think also there's something about how defiantly it sidesteps the white body. Um, and sidesteps the white body as a kind of norm, and I'm, you know, I'm, we're both white. That's not a criticism of you know whiteness, you know, in its entirety. But just to say, the series presents, the series, you know, it's a vision of London in which everybody is black, mm. and in which you know, or or of non-white, you know, origin. It's a vision of London in which regular monogamous heterosexual marriages are not the norm. It's a vision of London in which bodily pleasure is not regulated by any kind of colonial impulse, any bourgeois impulse. So I think there's something. There's, there's something futuristic in seeing bodies and lives pushed to the middle of a TV series that are normally relegated to the peripheries, I guess. Mm. And that combined with the sexual assault angle makes it really pertinent. Maybe we should talk about that because that's really incredible, the way in which the episode ends. Do you, do you want to talk through how that actually happens? Yeah, so the, the sexual assault is not presented directly. It's no. presented as part of a fragmented flashback to a, I suppose... I sp- epilogue of a mm. of a quite I suppose drunken night out but possibly there was some intervening factor some mm. spiking of a drink there's, there's a suggestion of that um, which and I believe the rest of the series actually investigates that it does and I've watched yeah exactly it does and it's interesting I mean the way it presents is that the whole series has this you know tipsy fragmented sense of space and time and it ends with yeah as you said a party scene where the sense of space and time fragments even further for a Mm. moment and then she wakes up the next morning and everything seems normal Mm. except the normality then becomes a bit uncanny a bit untensified everything's a little too normal and then at the very end there's another kind of there's a few images that kind of collapse into each other there's a slight slippage of a few scenes into each other and then she realizes retrospectively what's happened to her so there's there's something, there's something I think really powerful in the way that the series, the episode starts off by presenting her as with this incredible bodily autonomy and bodily confidence, but then at the end captures sexual assault as I guess the feeling of having had your body or part of your body taken away from you. Mm. Like it's a real sense of rem- thinking back to it and, and realising that there's a period in which she can't account for her body. Mm. And that violating sense of having lost space and time and bodily autonomy. That's right, yeah. She's lost a sense of, I suppose, 
herself in the sense that she's she's been robbed of that of that mm. autonomy, just robbed of robbed, I suppose, of her memories in some ways as well. And we hear a lot about the trauma of assault, but I think the series, it really captures the terror as well, and the mm. terror of, of suddenly realising with a chill that you can't account for your body. So yes. Something has happened to your body that you can't entirely explain or justify. And, it, and the episode ends quite abruptly after that, doesn't it? Absolutely. But I think what's powerful about this as well is that while it doesn't normalise sexual assault, it's not itself a trauma narrative. No. So it's, I, it's a character study where a sexual assault occurs and the character then needs to, I suppose, reintegrate. And you, you get a sense too that however it plays out, the main character is going to resist victimhood, which is not, mm. which is not, to, say, which is not to say that you know, she won't acknowledge the gravity of it, but the series seems prescient that the public sometimes has a bit of a taste for black folk reduced to victims, mm. to the spectacle of black folk reduced to victims. I feel maybe Precious comes in that category mm. a little bit in some ways. So you feel like you, even the title, Like I May Destroy You, you, you sense that the way in which it handles it is not, is not going to be simply to reduce her to an abject victim, which makes it compelling in a different way as yeah. well. And I think the way it's set up as well is the sexual assault is is almost part of a larger investigative story as well. Yes. So there's... There's, a, there's an element of intrigue and suspense associated with it as well. And it, it reminds me a little bit of that Paul Verhoeven film, Elle, which I think mm. you've seen, in which, you know, obviously, you know, you sense she's, she's outraged, she's scandalised at what's happened to her, but she's curious about it in a way that will lend itself to being more than just, you know, to, to, to autonomy in a situation. Her curiosity about what has happened is the first sign of her autonomy in responding to it. Definitely. So it lends itself a little bit to... The mystery, or the in some ways the the whodunit genre, and and it's interesting too, just in terms of mystery. I mean, just you know, jumping back to the formalism of it, it's quite a. It's I think it's the most elliptical pilot we've watched. Right, it's mm. quite unusual to watch as a pilot. It's not long. It's about twenty seven minutes. No, it probably has some of the most dramatic moments in any pilot we've watched, and yet it's so compressed and so unusual in the way it handles it so i think this is a really interesting one you know some other shows you watch a pilot it's almost like watching a miniature movie Mm. or getting a very watching the show in miniature whereas Mm. here you feel it could go in in a thousand different directions it feels like a a novella that's been yes cut down cut down uh significantly so you only have imagistic fragments absolutely and but nonetheless or a poem even yeah, yeah but nonetheless they're really fully fleshed out characters that you might get in a novella so for that reason i think just aesthetically and experientially watching it there is something very unique and original about it absolutely so i think this is one of the most original pilots i've seen this year how about you i I think it's i think it's very interesting i think it's very intriguing Mm. i I, i'm certainly interested in in, i suppose going on this journey and seeing where it's where it leads so i'm i'm in what about you yeah definitely it's categorical recommendation okay okay so moving on to our second series for this episode away away um, we love our one-word one word series and film titles, don't we? Away. <laughs> this is one you can whisper. Away. Um, <laughs> yes, this is, this is the first of two science fiction pilots that are directed by quite high-profile, I guess, auteurs. So the series pilot here is directed by Edward Zwick, who directed Glory, Legends of the Fall, Blood Diamond, the bling-bling and the bang-bang. <laughs> we love Leonardo DiCaprio's South African accent and Blood Diamond. It's one of the great great moments in cinematic history. And it's a um, science fiction series about the colonisation of Mars. So basically, it follows the first manned flight to Mars, and the pilot takes place 
in the moments around, well, two liftoffs, so a liftoff from Earth to the Moon and a liftoff from the Moon en route to Mars. Um, it's a pretty good cast. You've got the main character is Emma Green, a NASA astronaut who's played by Hilary Swank, and she's manning the mission, mm. so and to speak. I, and just, just here I have to say, Hilary Swank has, a, has an amazing face. Hilary Swank she? is incredible. I, I mean... <laughs> Watching this, I was like, "Where, where has Hilary Swank been? Like these, like last couple of years? I feel like I haven't seen her anything for ages." Yeah, we need more Swank in our lives. We do. Like she's <laughs> she's fantastic, and 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 the other main character is her husband Matt, played by Josh Charles, who's also an astronaut and who was originally going to man the mission, um, but was prevented due to a medical condition. So just to give a kind of brief overview, like a couple of this is one of those pilots that I thought was really amazing in some respects and really kind of bland in other respects. Basically, it, it all revolves around um, the launch for Mars, and there's a couple of key events that happen. Firstly, there are flashbacks to her decision to go to Mars and what it means for her family. Her daughter's also a major character. Secondly, her husband, um, Matt, has a, some kind of heart attack or some kind of stroke just as she's about to leave for Mars. And thirdly, en route from the Earth to the Moon, there's a technical malfunction in the ship and I guess a kind of Rashomon-like structure where the different crew members have differing interpretations of what happened, which to me seemed to presage a mutiny happening later on in the ship. Now, I don't know about you, Drew, but I thought the procedural stuff and, you know, the interpersonal stuff too with um, the Hilary Swank character and her team were fantastic. And I liked the texture of her family back at home. I thought that had a depth, but... I thought the second half of this series really suffered and really got kind of a bit soppy when it focused too much on what was happening on Earth rather than on route to Mars. What did you think? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the fatal mistake or the fatal flaw of this, of this TV show is it's really interested in the, the human drama back on Earth when I was completely on board with the procedural drama of what was happening on route to Mars. And, and also the human drama on route to Mars, right? Like it's fascinating to see the different crew members give their different opinions. So I, I couldn't quite get my head around the technicalities of, some of it, but basically what seems to happen between the Earth and the Moon is a, a chemical is loosed, you know, unleashed in the ship, and it's it's not put out properly, so some equipment is damaged. And each and the, we should probably clarify that um, the crew is... Com- the, the backstory is that five nations have combined to fund this mission to Mars, a film by Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got five different crew members from different countries and they all have just radically different perspectives on what's happened. And I also thought a slight flaw in the pilot was that it seems to clarify at the end to some extent what did happen, whereas I thought it was a lot more intriguing when there was just a little bit of uncertainty around it and a little bit of, a little bit of um, ambiguity going forward. There's something, just, something else I loved about the series. Remember, Drew, how much we loved... Um, Ad Astra. Yes. And one of the things we really loved about that was its quotidian depictions of outer space life. Yes, yes. Well, the the journey itself and its depiction of, I suppose, the the grandiose nature of the journey, Mm. but also the little glimpses you got Mm. of of um, colonisation of the moon. and So for those who haven't seen Ad Astra, it basically follows Brad Pitt as he moves from the Earth via the moon to Mars to Neptune, I want to say. But it takes place in a near-science future where the moon has become a place where domestic travel occurs. There's a Starbucks on the moon. Mm. People travel to the moon as they do long-haul travel now. And this series has some of that... It's, it's funny, like, we're so, outer space has been so mined and the deep future has been so mined that actually in some ways I think imagining the near future 
and imagining the moon as a as a domesticated space is stranger and more exciting. Definitely. And that, that definitely happens here, I think. I, I think this is, for me at least, this pilot was mission to Mars as a Hallmark greeting card. Interesting. Nice. I yeah. think... I think it was it was very saccharine at times. Mm. Is definitely the Edwards Wick of Legends of the Fall. Yep. More so than, than, of, Blood than of Glory or Blood Diamond. Mm. It's definitely not him playing in the or paddling in the genre pool so much as it's paddling in the in this both Daniel Steele style adaptation. And there's one particularly cringy scene where they the they the montage sequence intercutting you know, the two astronauts, Hilary Swank and Josh Charles characters making love and her putting on her astronaut suit. Yes. It's, a bit of, it's got a bit of a Munich, yes. Steven Spielberg Munich, you know, and that, the, the characters that, make love as a terrorist attack. That is a away. very unfortunate montage. It's, it's, it's full of very vanilla, you know, uh, I suppose, white lit, uh, you know, silk sheet sex scene. Yeah. The most vanilla, bland sort of Danielle Steele type sex scene you could possibly imagine. So, and, and with that, you know, that stuff happening on Earth, like I feel like... You know, the stuff in outer space, you know, there's a genuine sublimity to it. Where the stuff on Earth, there's a kind of there's a kind of silly solemnity I associate. There is. It's a, a bit of a first man quality, the film first man. Like there's there's a kind of a bit of an empty seriousness that can go along with science fiction and space exploration films that, that actually takes away from the gravity and the excitement of it. I think as well. I mean obviously there's a huge human interest story there in in, in outer space. In outer space. Yeah. Also in journeying into outer space and leaving those behind, especially on such a long mission to go to Mars. But why, why belabour that point? That will just naturally... It's, it's, part, sp- it's part and parcel of the genre, isn't it? Yeah, that I mean, naturally, uh, like, I suppose, seep out in the yep. actual drama, even just the, even just the actual procedure that the astronauts go through. I it, agree. That human interest would, would naturally and just, I suppose, through the subtext come out. And the funny thing is that, you know, above and beyond the procedure, you actually have this really interesting human narrative in the mutiny. Like yeah. these, 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 it's almost like a workplace drama. Like you, there's these growing tensions and resentments between the crew. There's an older Russian guy who clearly resents the Hillary Swank character. There's a scientist who's kind of hard to read. It's really interesting to think how will that all play out as the stakes grow higher, especially because we find out that the survival likelihood for the crew is 50-50 and it's a three-year return trip. So the stakes are very high. It's like a workplace drama mm. in an incredible setting mm. where the outcome is unknown and the stakes are really high. So I have to admit, for the first half hour or so, I was really engrossed and I was thinking, like, why is this received, you know, apart from a few bum notes here and there, I was like, why is this received such ambivalent reviews? In the second half, I was, oh, there we have it. Because <laughs> it gets really, I mean, something I have to I have to get in my soapbox. It's the subplot about her husband having a stroke back on Earth is so unnecessary. It is. It's it is. so generic. You don't need to tug on the heartstrings. Your no. wife is going on a possible suicidal mission yeah, exactly. to colonise Mars for possibly exactly. a decade. Exactly. And... You know, and the family stuff worked really well to contour the outer space stuff at times. So, like, there's a great scene where, you know, she's talking to her daughter back on Earth just through dial-up internet, basically, or, you know, wireless internet. Um, and she takes her iPad and to the window of the space station on the moon and shows the daughter how the Earth looks. And just that, the weird normality of her and the daughter talking through social media devices, but the daughter looking up on the moon and realising her mum's up there. It's It's... It's uncanny and it's really wondrous. So those little moments work well, but just these long, belaboured family plots, it's like, why are we back on Earth again? <laughs> like, I don't want to be on Earth. <laughs> no, I want to be no. en route to Mars. No, no. And I, I'm, I'm wondering whether this is because of who it's targeted at. Interesting. And I think this might be one of, I suppose, algorithmic in its cynicism. Maybe it's targeting 
maybe it's targeting largely a female demographic who's not so interested in the sci-fi elements. I, the funny thing is what I really liked about it at first was it seemed so different from... I mean, you know, the, the main point of reference for me was a film like The Martian. And that's interesting. That's really Scott, who we're going to talk about in a moment. But, you know, something didn't sit... I mean, I thought The Martian was really entertaining and really immersive, but actually was Hilary Swank in The Martian? Was not she, was not she, to my knowledge. Was she one of the astronauts who went to rescue him? Oh, my. That, that might be the case. Anyway, yeah. Um, but, the, you know, The Martian kind of... Something didn't sit right with me. And the more I, I read a bit of it afterwards and I went back and rewatched part of it, and I kind of felt like The Martian was almost like Mars as nostalgia for the like white settler mentality or nostalgia for the frontier. You know, like the self-sufficient man of the land, the self-sufficient West. There's a bit when... Matt Damon makes a disparaging comment about Mars being great because there's no disco anywhere, which I, I didn't care for. Just, mm-hmm. This was kind of the opposite. Like, this was like a vision of Mars that was, you know, you know, cross-national. It was collaborative. It was global. It was... Hilary Swank and her team, I thought, was such an original and such an interesting group of astronauts to be investigating Mars. I just, I just thought it was... It was such a... So, so different from the kind of... I guess the brinksmanship we often see around how Mars is treated, whether Matt Damon in the film or Elon Musk in real mm. life. I thought, I, thought, I thought it was really promising ideologically and interesting ideologically. Oh, absolutely. And the Mars colonisation, as it becomes increasingly imminent, mm. seems like it's, it's definitely a fertile territory for speculative sci-fi. Absolutely. Like and again, that sense of you know, the near future rather than you know, the future in 500 years rather than the future in 5 million years. It's what, it's what is increasingly uncanny in science fiction. Definitely. And... Considering, I suppose, making a mission to Mars movie or colonisation of Mars movie made me think back to a more recent TV series. And mm. I was wondering whether you had a chance to watch this. Mm. It was the Sean Penn vehicle, The First, from no, 2018. I didn't see that. So how did that... So that's a, a really good point of reference. So how did this compare to that? Well, I suppose that was... This is the female-centric uh, version of that in some okay. ways. But one thing about The First was it was, it was very beautifully shot, mm. but quite... I, suppose, I might even describe it as glacially paced. So does that deal with the, the trip to Mars or does it take, start on Mars? It, it often deals with the politicking of the actual journey to Mars itself. Okay. So I, I didn't, in full confession, get all the way through the series, but I got up to about episode four, by which time they hadn't even taken off. So do you reckon this series was trying to define itself against the first? Is it trying to do something different from the first? Add, well, add an emotional element maybe that was missing, in your opinion? Well, from the that? first did have that emotional element, but I think... What I was very grateful for about this show was it actually started getting getting underway on the journey, yeah, straight and, away. And those bits of it are beautiful. Like there was a moment where I was like, this almost had a bit of a Dennis Villeneuve kind of feel. Like the huge, I mean, that's generous, but still, like the huge empty landscapes, the cavernous sense of space. It looked really beautiful on a high definition, you know, widescreen television. So you know, it. What's frustrating is it it gets the majesty of outer space and it gets the beauty, but then. I mean, and you say it's female-centric, but it's weird, like, this this stroke narrative, it just ends up reiterating her as, you know, torn between being an astronaut and a mother and a daughter, and that's all assumed. Like, we don't need to reiterate that. Like, in a way, it, it's like it has this idea of a female astronaut then backs away from it with this more conventional, like, wife and mother narrative. Mm. It doesn't really trust the, the, the sci-fi the, story. It doesn't really trust the human interest story either. Mm. So it ends up being an unusual, I suppose, case of neither being fish nor fowl. 
And I think almost feels like two entirely separate shows in the pilot, I thought. Almost like two entirely separate halves. Now, I thought you would be on board with Josh Charles, so... I'm a, good, I'm a huge Good Wife fan. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I mean, I love Josh Charles. Like, I, and, I, I th- and I thought he was a really good foil to Hilary Swank. Yeah. Like, I think both of them, they have what one of my friends called, like, soap opera faces. So mm. they... She, the way she put a soap opera face is it's got to be someone who's good looking enough to watch for a whole series, but they've got to be interesting enough to sustain you for years. And both of them are good looking in a wry and interesting way. Definitely. Like they're, they're a really interesting couple. Um, yeah, again, I just thought... That, and, and something I thought was really promising at first in terms of the Josh Charles character is that because he's an ex-astronaut and he was actually intended to go on the mission originally, he plays a big part in ground control. So I thought, well, this is going to work really well. The personal element is going to be deflected into the procedural element. Like, they've found a way to keep him around as a character without detracting from the mission. So Mm. that was a really deft way Mm. to do it. And I liked that idea of her having that personal point of contact. But then he has a stroke, and you've got this whole... I know I'm really, really focusing on the stroke (laughs) narrative, but I friggin' hated it. Like, you have this stroke narrative, and then suddenly you have this whole distraction on Earth, which is... It's banal. Like, it takes away from the elevation. Dare I say, did did you want less Josh Charles? I wanted less... Post, well, I, I, I wanted less Josh Charles in hospital. I wanted more Josh Charles in the control room. Because, you know, also like the hospital genre, it's a bit of a drab genre. Like, I don't think it works along. There are going to be medical problems aplenty in space, right? Absolutely. There's going to be medical problems in space. Let's just deal with those. And those would be more interesting and require more ingenuity. So, yeah. So you filed all these complaints to, to Edward Zwick? Yes, Edward Zwick. yeah, yeah. I, I've, been, I've been... My people have got in touch with Zwick's people. And we're going to... Yeah, so I'm, I'm really curious. Like, what do you... What do you think about this? Like, do you want to... I'm really mixed about whether I want to keep watching this one. I'm a, I'm a hard out. i got to say, I'm, I'm really on the fence. Like, I found, I found the Mars stuff so interesting. I love the rapport between the crew. I reckon I'll probably give it another episode or two. And if it continues with the Josh Charles hospital stuff, or even worse, if we get any more of the flashbacks... We haven't talked about the pizza-making flashback. <laughs> There's like a... Like, I guess a... I mean, I love Lifetime films. This is not even an insult. It's like, you know, a sub-lifetime montage sequence of the whole family throwing pizza ingredients in the air. And mm. that, that's the nadir, I think, of the show. So <laughs> I, I say the, any more flashbacks, any more, any more time on Earth, and that will be a hard a hard no for me as well. So, Edward Zwick, no more pizza series sequ- making sequences at all. Thank you. No more pizza. And, and if the series continues this way, I will be going away. <laughs> Okay, so moving on from one director to another, we're going to talk about the series Raised by Wolves, which is helmed by Ridley Scott. Drew, do you want to talk us through the basic premise and your impressions of the show to get started? Yeah, so Raised by Wolves is a recently released American sci-fi series from director Ridley Scott. So Ridley Scott, obviously famous for the the Alien franchise and later the Prometheus extension the of alien, the Alien universe. The Alien Quadrilogy, quintilogy, sextilogy, <laughs> seven, seventilogy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I couldn't. Couldn't even tell you what the seventh. The alien series. cycle. <laughs> the alien. The alien cycle. cycle. The alien cycle. Um, so he's also the executive producer of this, and this comes from writer Aaron uh, Guzikowski, who was. Are you a big Guzikowski fan, Andrew? Well, I actually am. Yep. He wrote um, the movie Prisoners, the 2013. Hugh Jackman. Oh, I, th- I thought I was going to call you out in that. And actually, you had, you had really good Guzikowski <laughs> oh, knowledge. I, I've been with Guzikowski from the, from the beginning. Th- you're not a Guzikowski bandwagoner. <laughs> from the inception. And Prisoner, Prisoners is great too, isn't it? Prisoners is one of my favourite uh, recent movies. Yeah, brilliant. Dennis um, Villeneuve, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it was a really well-written, a fantastically written it is. Um, it is actually movie. Yeah. Yes. So excited about the, the Guzikowski connection. 
obvious reasons. Obviously, yeah. I Obviously. Mean, yeah, I, I need um, to get on Gutekowski. You do. Um, and this, is, this has a very intriguing premise. So it centres around two androids known as mother and father who are tasked with raising human children on a faraway planet called Kepler-22b after the Earth has been assumedly destroyed by a great war. So as these the two androids struggle to raise human children in very hostile and inhospitable uh, land, they encounter a competing religious tribe. Mm. So the, the way this pilot foreshadows is that there will be a major religious, I suppose, uh, conflict between the androids and and a human faction. And it seems like the androids too have turned atheism into a kind of religion, right? So when they... When they raise the children, they their whole thing is atheism, like, you know, trying to talk about the dangers of religion, the destruction of religion. And part of the reason that they're scared of humans is because humans are religious. The, the, the last remaining humans have adopted, have adopted a religious cult called Mid- Midraicism or they're Midraic. Mid- yeah, yeah, so a, a version of fundamental, religious yep. fundamentalism. Yep. So the androids are aiming to, to raise human children free mm. from from external influences yes. in some ways and rebuild a utopian universe. Mm. And humans, humankind, humans are described as endangered species yep. in need of protection and yep. shepherding through their growth and development. Now, this is a very interesting premise mm. and I think I think you would probably agree this in terms of rating the premise, highly compelling. And I think, yeah, I think this is probably the most original premise we've seen. And, you know, you've given us a, an overview of the main plot points, but, you know, it's hard without watching it to capture just how disorienting it is. So, you know, for the first... This is what what Drew's just said. There is stuff you kind of piece together, right? Like for the first 30 minutes of the pilot, there's, there's nobody in it but children and androids. Mm. And it all happens without a lot of exposition. So a spaceship crashes on a deserted planet... The androids come out, they raise five children, four of them die, or six children, five of them die. You're left with two androids and one child. The action spans, what, 14, 15 years. There's minimal dialogue. They discover the remains of a civilization on the planet, or the remains of what look like dinosaurs or megafauna on the planet. And there's no real exposition beyond that. And it's, you know, again, to reiterate, there's there's no human adults in it. It's just no. an, a pair of androids and in the end one child. So and the androids speak in a very flat, uh, unaffected yeah, manner in some ways. Affectless kind of manner. So it's, you know, it's, it's really immersive. Like it's incredible world building and it's very intriguing. And I'll, I'll confess the way I watched this was interesting. I watched um, the first... 30 minutes or so I took a break and then I came back and that was actually quite a good way to do it because there's a very sudden and very violent and very dramatic change of events in about the last 10 minutes isn't yes it? do you want to talk or should I talk to that or do you want to talk through what happens like well it's hard to dis- it, it is and a lot happens in this in this show so it, it almost packs 15 years mm. of, of story into a 50 minute pilot it's so like watching it's genuinely like watching a compressed movie isn't it it is it is mm. it is and I suppose one intriguing point or plot point is in some ways will this be woven into the Prometheus extended universe which was immediately what I suppose triggered me in some ways. Absolutely. I mean in some ways it reminded me so much. I mean I I liked Prometheus and I, I loved Alien Covenant but I can also see 
how there were things that needed to be redressed in both mm. those films. And this film, this feels like it's going to do that. I mean, for two reasons. Firstly, the kind of nexus between human and cyborg creation, but also mm. just the world. I mean, something we haven't mentioned is, I guess when you have the action spanning such a vast you know, a period of time for a pilot, 15 years, and you have an absence of humans, the space and the backdrop play a critical role. And the planet here is so atmospheric, isn't yes. it? Like, I think Ridley Scott has such a talent for creating worlds that feel both primeval and futuristic. Yes. So feel like millennia behind and millennia ahead of our own world. Yes. So they're kind of... And like like the planet in Alien Covenant, this feels a bit like that kind of space, doesn't yes. it? Yes. And he has a way of creating environments that are both lush and arid. Yeah, lush and austere, at, yeah. At the same time. Absolutely. So there's, there's an unusual sense, I suppose, when you've got the androids and the uh. humans and... We have a real focus on fertility and exactly. barrenness yep. and so forth. And yep. a, a lot of this does play in the texture of the show and the, the atmosphere and the, and the landscape. And that that does just texture the show that's, in a lot that, of ways. That's a really nice connection, yeah. So it's like you're saying that the androids are both fertile at some level because mm. they're raising their children, but also, you know, sterile. Mm. And the landscape reflects that because it's lush and arid. And Yeah, exactly. So they, it appears to be in some kind of desert. But at the same time, it's bounded by mountains and there's constant shots of just fog rolling over the mountains, mm. like orographic rainfall, yeah. I guess, often used to chart the passage of time. The, yes. Time is very lyrical in the series, the way in which time passes. So, yeah, exactly. It's The space and the landscape is, is instantly recognisable as that of the alien prequel films. Definitely. And the, the most, I suppose, close parallel in terms of its aesthetic mm. and its story mm. is Prometheus itself, especially the beginning part of Prometheus. Yes. And it feels in some ways that, that uh, Guzid, uh, Guzikowski... Love was, Guzikowski. <laughs> saw, ...saw that first 10 minutes of Prometheus yes. and thought, how can I expand this into a series and build a world around it? And it has that kind of... It has that same feeling of Prometheus too that... You know, we're headed towards something really interesting and maybe a connection with what we already know. But the path to get there is going to be really oblique and unexpected, mm. which is part of the the pleasure. I, I must say, it did also remind me of the, the planet in Alien Covenant as well, which has that, that lush space, as you said, but also that mm. kind of desert space where the inventor or whatever he is lives. Yes. So. I think what's intriguing about this show is that this is probably the closest I've ever seen to TV approximating the experience of, of reading what is known as a hard sci-fi yes novel where you have a completely alienating estranging premise mm. where all your expectations your understanding of mm. the relationship of humans and, and machines the idea of the world uh, is completely upended in mm. some ways and you're you're highly disoriented but also intrigued by the the differences between this this created universe and the and your own so and i think I, just just to add to that it's it's probably the most successful tv series i've seen just in capturing the epic sweep of science fiction. You know, yes. like you think of science fiction as being such a, a big screen phenomenon and typically small scale science fiction or television science fiction tends to focus on the interiors of ships or interpersonal relationships. Whereas this this really goes for that widescreen cinematic sweep, doesn't it? Mm. Yes, definitely. And it does remind me of the experience of, of reading something, mm. reading some of those those hard sci-fi mm. novels, which sometimes I, I admit I find difficult to mm. to get through, just given the lack of, I suppose, 
characters you can identify mm. with or sympathetic connections mm. with the characters as well. And this is this is highly and deliberately alienating for the a- audience. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, just I know I've said it a couple of times, just you know, it's quite radical to have a pilot where there are virtually no adult characters, no, and to it's... for the most part, vast majority of it. Two androids and a child. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about the style of the show too. Like, I'm I'm trying to think about the way in which it it captures that scientific sweep. I mean, there's only so big a television screen can be. So, it seems like the way in which Ridley Scott compensates that is to include heaps of empty space. Yes. So it's it's, it's full of voids. It's full of huge cavernous, yawning spaces. And there's there's a similar emptiness when it comes to the characters too. Like they're not underwritten or they're not one dimensional a conventional way, but they're just they're lacking the normal empathic human qualities you'd get in realism. So the emptiness in the characters and the emptiness in the space gives the whole thing a scale that I thought was quite remarkable for television. Absolutely. It's it's a thoroughly unique and mm. compelling premise. Mm. I, I really wonder what, what the how large an audience this is going to garner. Well, I wonder whether, you know, the people it will appeal to are Alien fanboys and fangirls, like people who love yeah. people or, who, or Prometheus fanboys. Or, I mean, yes, yeah, so this has so much more in common with Prometheus than, I mean. than Alien. I mean, it's not at all a, a genre show. It's not at all a, a haunted house in space in no. any in any respect. It's so, much more inaccessible. No, and that's what I meant. Like people who who wanted more of Prometheus or were frustrated, yeah. especially the, the arcane. Uh, allegorical and uh, anthropological elements of, of Prometheus. This is for people who are really, really gagging for that that yeah. element. Yeah, and in some ways, I think that you know, in their own way, Prometheus and Alien Covenant are the most philosophical of the mm. Alien films, and definitely Alien Covenant is almost like a theodicy, right? Like you, a theodicy being like a text that focuses on the question of whether a higher being is ethical. I mean, you know, it's incredible. Like the, what I took away from that film was the idea that you know the the, the creator or the deity in that film had actually created the alien as a as a sublime symbol of his own power so the alien is almost like a deity figure so you can see something of that alien quality here i mean something that's quite incredible and that brings you back around to like this idea of you know authority figures or deity figures being alienating i mean there's this incredible turn in the last 10 minutes of the series where all of a sudden some humans arrive the humans want to take the child back with them and destroy the android. And instead the android destroys the humans and beams up to the human spaceship and kills all the humans, crashes the spaceship, mm. and then apart, you know, kills all the humans apart from a few other children on board who she brings into her, I guess, her nest. But there's this incredible scene of the of the android going through the spaceship and she seems to kill the humans by looking at them. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's that, this has to be one of the most visceral visceral kind of scenes i've seen in a tv pilot like it connects sight and violence in such an incredible way like as you know i'm not good with eye violence uh, no <laughs> and there's, there's i was very, wondering how are you going that in that penultimate scene there's a very gruesome scene of eye violence but also her gaze just the way she looks at people produces scenes of such horrific and violent intensity so you, it, the whole thing i guess ends with her son on the planet or the child she's raised seeing the aftermath of her violence and realising that this android who's raised him for the last 15 years is profoundly other. So that, that sense of the otherness of authority figures, the otherness of, of you know, moral guardians, it's a real thing in the Alien series. I think, yeah, I think this is probably the most interesting thing about this pilot, mm. is that your whole early pattern of sympathetic identification is upended Absolutely. by the end. At the early, uh, the early part of the, the show, you, you really, despite the fact that they are... They are different and, and, and other in some ways, these these androids. You do identify them sort of with their 
eking eking out this this settler existence well, they're, on they're, the planet. And they're the only carers we see, and because there are no human adults, ne- naturally you think you're going to be pro the androids, mm. and then in fact the android turns out to be this. It's a bit like the Michael Fassbender character, yeah. and this android actually turned out to be this radically other, radically alienating being whose whose trail of violence is. I think one of the most visceral scenes in oh, recent, in recent yeah. Ridley Scott. It's, 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 it's a high point in yeah. Ridley Scott's body I mean, of work. You don't have any uh, chest violence, but there's enough eye violence to compensate for the lack of chest violence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you feel like he's going for that same ingenious violence you get in the Alien series, right? Like yeah. that really yeah, visceral, yeah, the eye stuff was hard for me. <laughs> what do you think, I suppose there's, there's a lot of scope here for, I guess, painting or portraying mm. the, the human characteristics or the human characters and the human... I suppose religious fundamentalists mm. as as alien or estranging, but in some ways they're not deliberately portrayed as that in the in the pilot at all. No. So what's interesting is, yeah, when the humans arrive, they also seem relatively sympathetic in their mm. own way too. I, I'm kind of hoping actually that the series doesn't include too much of the sympathetic human characters, like I or human characters full stop. Like I feel like it'll be most effective when it dances around on the cusp of the post-human, mm. where everybody is just on this human, post-human threshold and we don't have too much humanity to mm. anchor things. What's, what's I suppose, interesting as well in the pilot, the pilot is has such a close focus on mm. just a very few limited set of characters mm. in a very limited space. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how much this world expands outwards mm. and... I, I suppose the ambitions of this show in painting a larger universe beyond this immediate planet, and it reminded me in that sense of one of the first pilots we reviewed, C. Yes, where you start with a very circumscribed idea of the world, and then, like C, I mean, I think even more than C, this is this. It's it's it shows that world building is not just you know adding on reference after reference, like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Often, world building is world withholding, mm. and like just really deliberately keeping things elliptical and keeping things ambiguous. Yeah. Do you think that this is a show for people who like Prometheus or who like Alien or who like Ridley Scott or both? Well, I think it's definitely a show for people who like Ridley Scott. I wonder if it's a show for people who are yearning for, on the one hand, an even more ingenious and elliptical connection between Alien and Prometheus, but on the other hand, an even more concrete connection. Mm. Were you a Prometheus fan? It's interesting. I... I was asked this kind of quite recently. I'm not sure. I mean, you remember, Drew, that the hype was so big around Prometheus and the expectation well, until, was... until that, everyone saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was, there was such a strong anticipation and expectation of what it would be that I think that... I think that it was that the obliqueness took people by surprise. Mm. And I think it's not a fully realised film in some no. respects as well. So I definitely didn't dislike it, but I remember feeling... A sense of anticlimax. It was partly reversed with Alien Covenant, which I really loved. But yeah, I feel like, in a way, I feel like even if this doesn't become a part of the Alien saga, it's so it partakes so well of the world of both the classic Alien films and the later Alien films that it might as well be a, a, a missing link or a, mm. or a bridging text. Mm. And that's I'm, I'm, I'm definitely compelled to watch more. It's definitely Alien adjacent. Alien adjacent. Have you watched any more of it? I have not. So interestingly, I watched five more minutes today after, you know, just out of curiosity, and the second episode opens with Boston 2155 with a kind of a global war taking place in Boston, which I love. So it feels like it's going to move around in time in very elliptical ways, 
Right. But the backstory will be really interesting once you put it together. Okay. So are you in? I'm a hard in for this. Have hard you? in? I think I'm in. Yep. I'm in. I, I think it's it's thoroughly original. Yep. It's thoroughly compelling. And it's doing something that that other shows, I suppose, are too scared to. Mm, exactly. It's, it's, it's science fiction, widescreen science fiction that genuinely works on a television. Awesome. Okay, so onto this week's archive corner. And before we discuss it, it's probably worth flagging, worth flagging, my list there, that we're going to be announcing next week's archive corner at the end of each episode. And Drew and I are going to take it in turns to come up with a show. So, Drew, you've got a show. Oh, I've got one lined up. You've got a doozy. This is my week. Okay, cool. Let's, we'll, look, we'll look forward to that. And my choice this week is the um, classic Two and a Half Men. So we went back and we watched... Um, the pilot of Two and a Half Men. I've just realised that I, I, I've forgotten what year it actually started. Was it 2003? Um, that, that when it started? 2004? I, I wasn't really so au fait with the, the Two and a Half Men bandwagon. I wasn't really, didn't really jump on board at the time. So yeah, 2003, September. Yeah, I didn't really get on board with it at the time. I didn't really know much about it until the late 2000s when I realised that here was a show that fulfilled my love of the low-effort canned <laughs> laughter sitcom. So those of you who've listened to the podcast will know that, Drew, I love my sitcoms, <laughs> and the more low-effort, the better. Uh, conversely, I'm, I'm not a fan of, like, uh, self-referential sitcoms. No, I'm not a fan of, no. like, post-sitcoms, like Modern <laughs> Family, that are... Look, you know, Modern Family has its moments, but you know what I mean? Like, shows you, you that like, are... You like your sitcom like you like your cakes. Traditional. Traditional, exactly. <laughs> yep, exactly. Just give me the orange cake, mud cake. And look... Most of the listeners probably know the premise of Two and a Half Men, but just to um, just to go over it again, <laughs> Charlie Sheen is Charlie, bachelor, jingle writer. His um, brother, Alan, played by John Cryer, breaks up with his wife, moves in with his son, Jake, who's apparently now a fundamentalist Christian, has disavowed the entire series. Oh. So Jake is not on board with Two and a Half Men. And um, the rest is history. In fact, I'm thinking, Drew, that... Two and a Half Men came into really big visibility in the early 2000s because of the Charlie Sheen breakdown. Yes. So those you know, listening will know that, there were, that Charlie Sheen had a kind of, I guess, a, he kind of blazed his way across television and social media. I think he referred to himself as this truth that refuses to stop calling itself Charlie <laughs> Sheen. So this truth that refuses to stop calling itself Charlie Sheen. He started referring to himself... In the third in the person. person. Um, we're not in a blaze of glory. I remember reading a great interview about Charlie Sheen describing how he'd invented 4D cinema. He, he I think he was watching Jaws on his yacht. Yes. And he lined up the television with yes. the horizon. So He had tiger blood. He had tiger blood, exactly. So at that point... He was at, winning. At that point, um, Ashton, was twinning. Ashton Kutcher came on board as Walden Schmidt. But that's, <laughs> that's a long time in the future. So the basic premise here is he got Charlie, lives in a house, you know... Um, yeah, by the beach, his brother comes to live with him and his brother's son, and the rest is history. So, Drew, what did you think about rewatching the pilot of this classic sitcom? Well, I think I like that you say rewatching. This is the first time watched for me. <laughs> I, I, I've watched the series many times. It was it was my safe space um, when I was doing my PhD. I, I know many episodes off by heart. Yeah. So, what did you? Welcome to the Two and a Half Men universe. Well, what, well. What, what did you think? And we should say too, this is the Chuck Lorre canon, right? So it is. Chuck Lorre excels is. in the low effort. He's the low effort. Sitcom. He's the master of the canned, the canned laughter uh, sitcom. Do you have any other favourite Chuck Lorre films? <laughs> series? Well, I was always intrigued by Mike and Molly, given uh, it starred the incomparable Melissa I'm McCarthy. I'm a huge Mike and Molly fan. <laughs> a great Chicago backdrop, Melissa McCarthy in fine form. Love it. I mean, sometimes you do need the, the audience, the, the laugh track to do the work for you. And, and something that's so noticeable about this pilot is like, 
every line is pretty much a joke. So <laughs> no matter what Charlie Sheen says or what the John Cryer character says, you get canned laughter. There's something and that's... and really hysterical canned laughter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the lowest effort, low energy, non-joke. Yeah, receive really almost like. I suppose, paroxysms of laughter and, from the audience. And part of what makes it such a, a fun series to watch is that Charlie Sheen is just phoning it in, isn't oh, he? Like, I think that's, that's part of the appeal and the pleasure the of the charm of the series, yeah. Like, <laughs> Charlie Sheen obviously doesn't need the money, doesn't particularly care about whether he's there, it seems, and he'll make some throwaway comment barely delivering his lines and then you get this raucous raucous laugh there's no there's no attempt to explain the premise i mean apparently he is it malibu where it's set like uh, it's it's set in his beach house and i remember the actual premise set, so he of charlie sheen obviously is is very wealthy and he has yep. a passive income from his jingle writing but that's what i was going to say that that's part of the, that's the enjoyable laziness there's no explanation about how someone became a multi-billionaire just from writing serial <laughs> jingles right but What's interesting as well is he comes from a wealthy family. Yep. John Cryer's wealthy. There's no reason they need to cohabit. No, exactly. Yeah. And there's no reason, especially with a 10-year-old child who is obviously a bad influence, yep. or Charlie Sheen is obviously a bad influence on the, on this kid. Why do they need to cohabit? The complication doesn't, makes no sense. This is like one of my favourite sitcom premises. Like, I reckon the best sitcoms are when you get you know, a provisional living arrangement outside of the regular you know, nuclear family and for completely arbitrary purposes, the provisional living arrangement continues yes. for years. And there's something comforting about that. Like, it's like the sitcom, sometimes the sitcom doubles down on nuclear family life. Sometimes it's like a line of flight from nuclear family life. Mm. And in its own weird, eccentric way, this series gets that all of these characters are much more interesting in this weird provisional living arrangement and it's funny that there's some really kooky side characters i'd forgotten about like melanie linsky as yes. the, the neighbor who's stalking charlie and of course charlie's mother yes and so massive the, massive billy girl and i think that i love the way the characters introduced here they're yep. introduced in such a dramatic uh, dramatic flourish the audience applauds it's almost like the audience assume a familiarity with the character already so yes i think with definitely with the actors and yep. i think part of the appeal of this show actor is, recognition is, is actor recognition yep. and people's I suppose the starry image of a lot of the, a lot yep. of the the actors, and and clearly I suppose the intersection of Charlie Sheen's personal personal life with, Charlie the, with and the Charlie, action, yeah, with it, the actual action in the show is part of the appeal. And it's worth saying his mother is played by Holland Taylor, so who you know we know from you know she's in um, all kinds of like TV series. She's in a relationship with Sarah Paulson. She was in Hollywood most recently. And she's just fabulous. She, I mean, she is. <laughs> I love my sassy older women. I love my sassy, stylish. She's the archetype. Older. She's the archetype of Billy Girl. Like I, I want to have, I want to have like drinks with her. You want to have, you want to have her babies. I want, yeah, I want to be around her and talk about her fabulous life. She, I think she's a real estate agent. Apparently, she's by. She, she's just one withering comment after another. But something kind of cool about the series, like it has this really you know, dude bro humour, but it's quite campy at the same time. It, it's, it is. It's cornered every market with the bare <laughs> minimum that's required. And I, I agree with what you say. I think the the appeal of this sitcom like this is it's, it's low energy and low effort nature in a lot of ways. And there's something so... I mean, there's something about what... I mean, this is probably part of the reason why reality television is so appealing. There's something... You know, we, we get bombarded with so much high-concept stuff, and especially around the time this series came out, so much, you know, self-referential, hyperactively intelligent television, like Arrested Development, Modern Family. There's something so... 
so fantastic about watching a show that is ingeniously doing the very bare minimum. Yes, absolutely. The very least it needs to. You can you can sink right into it. No, absolutely. It's like I a think, warm bath. <laughs> I think there are probably about five stock standard jokes and yep. joke variations. Now, I, I think this might be a characteristic of the Lorray joke model yep. and the Lorray joke machine, which is that Charlie Sheen is a is a womanizer. Yep. And there's like, I suppose every one in and five. And his brother joke, is not. His his brother is not, and is is possible is often mistaken. For for being gay. Yep. So one of the stock standard jokes is <laughs> yep. that is Charlie Sheen's uh, not so subtle sexual innuendo. Yep. A second joke is yep. that is his brother's, I suppose, being misrecognised for being gay. Yep. And uh, and also just disparaging comments about you know you living with mum. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. So <laughs> yes, it, the anti-mum jokes. It, it, it's, it's almost, but then the mums own zingers as well. Yes. Back at Charlie Sheen. So it's basically like if you had like a, a zinger app yes. or a zinger bot or you got 10 monkeys in a room to write zingers, they, they come up with two and a half men. And it's just, it's so damn comforting. I mean, I, th- I think it's also so much of a great sitcom is like, it's that low effort predictability. And there is an ingenuity in that. There's an ingenuity in the kind of the canned joke plus a really atmospheric, comforting house. <laughs> so the house, I get very attached well, to sitcom You don't really go houses. much past the house. You don't. And you, you go to the supermarket, maybe, five and, minutes. And you don't need to. So <laughs> I, I get really attached to the houses in sitcoms. You know, I'm a big fan of the Spanish moss and According to Jim. And in this house, it's all about the tiles. I think you are the world's greatest fan of According to Jim. I love... I. <laughs> I an According to Jim fan club. You'd be number one. I, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of According to Jim, and that, we'll do that at another day. But in this case, like, um, I'm all about the tiles and this, the, the, the tiles and the stairs, the tiles and the table. <laughs> I love it. It's a split-level house, so there's not there's kind of a half upstairs, a half downstairs. Everything's contiguous. The floor plan just works for me, man. So on the on the seventh rewatch, you're just focusing on the architecture and the, <laughs> the, the spaces in between the characters. Little, you, you know, I'm like I'm 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 a big fan of Will the and Grace. The textures of the, the canned laughter. Exactly. I was saying, you know I'm a big fan of Will and Grace, and there's. There's a couple of episodes where you can see a door that you don't normally see. Oh, in really? And that, that always really excites me. <laughs> Are you going to write fan fiction about that fan door? Fan fiction about that door, where it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's something, there is just something about seeing generic television mm. done well and done honestly that is, is, is in a way so much more enjoyable than empty innovation. Yes, and there is, there is I, something... I'm getting a bit carried away. It's not a masterpiece. <laughs> it's not well, a masterpiece. Well, it's, I think it's, it's the masterpiece of, of low energy, low effort... Uh, machine-ridden sitcom. And I think also because we saw how crazy and anarchic and brilliantly off the rails Charlie Sheen can be when he became the truth that refuses to stop calling itself Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I mean, you get a sense there of his life energy. So it makes yes. his non-effort by comparison even more enjoyable. <laughs> yes. And there's something there's something enjoyable, enjoyable, enjoyably ridiculous about seeing him him phoning it in yep. and, and being increasingly perversely rewarded by Hollywood <laughs> by getting paid yep. more and more each yep. season until yep. he was up to multi-millions at the end and where he, he could barely stand up. And reflected in the premise of the show, right, too. Like, it's like, how the hell does somebody made up a couple of jingles live in a, you know, $5 million condo at Malibu? I mean, obviously, we need to mention, too, that the, the theme music of the, is just brilliant. Man, <laughs> men, 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 manly men, man. <laughs> And, and the way it just, it just uh, I suppose, uh, frames every scene. Yeah, every scene has the, this wonderfully inane-like thing. I mean, it's like, a, it's like a canned theme song, right? Like, everything is just as generic as possible. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a really generic sitcom delivered by very charismatic actors. Yeah. So, Do you think uh, part of the appeal of this show is the, is the throwback nature? I think so. The I, nostalgia factor in seeing a, a classic... 
a classic traditional sitcom? I do, because I think also the sitcom has such a cosy sense of space. I think, right, the sitcom... The sitcom is so aware of the television as a fixture in your living room. Mm. So it's your living room to their living room. So the fact that most sitcoms only have a couple of camera positions, only have a couple of sets, the static nature of the sitcom is like a mirror. It's like a portal between the television and your living room. So it's yes. television as a hearth, yes. as a warm hearth. Television yes. to sit around. Which and television a, where, you, where you lose a sense of time. Yep. In some ways there's a oh, time... I've, I've lost a lot of time <laughs> with two and a half minutes. There's, there's almost a timelessness in a lot of sitcoms. Sitcoms, and so I don't think it's any surprise that you often see in sci-fi, in sci-fi movies, where you see someone who's who's trapped in a time bubble, mm-hmm. trying to relive a nostalgic past, gravitates towards sitcoms. A so you sitcom often see, kind of world. yeah, or you often see sitcoms in those time capsules. Absolutely, well, I'm place. thinking of one of my favorite, one of my favorite films of the 2000, 2010s is Ten Cloverfield Lane, mm. and a lot of that takes place. Um, possibly post an, an, an apocalyptic attack in an underground bunker that's been fitted out to look like a sitcom. Yes. So it's often arrested development, frozen time. Yeah, so I, th- I think what I like about it, it is that throwback to a different way of watching television where, you know, I love the fluidity of television now. I love the different platforms. I love the possibilities. But I also do have a nostalgia for television just as that warm fixture in your living room. And your living room is the only place where you do watch television. Yes. You know, our, our, our living room to Charlie's living room. So yes. and I think there's a time and place for this. So you think about your favourite meal. You have, Everyone has a favourite meal. Maybe yep. your favourite meal is a cheeseburger. A pizza. And maybe you, you want to eat that five times a week. And also, I think it's a nostalgia here for the golden age of DVDs. Mm. So this is the kind of series that... You know, these kind of series, all of a sudden, you know, you remember Drew in the you know, early to mid-noughties, became, it became available to watch en masse mm. yes. because of DVDs. So I, I owned, like, I owned the box set of two and a half minute DVDs. I have no <laughs> idea where it is now. And I just binge watch it. Yeah. I put it on the background. And it's just, it's, it's, it's predictability is comforting. But it's all, like I said, it, 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 is, it is predictable, generic comedy there's, there's a flair in that plus a charismatic cast plus a great backdrop yes and that, that's a trifecta for me i mean <laughs> that's man, <all> you need. <laughs> man so with that in mind having talked about that blast in the past what do you reckon is going to be your choice for pilot club next week in terms oh, of archive corner i don't reckon i'm a, you know i'm a dictator right now what's it going to be and i'm dictating billy uh we're going to the dojo amazing so talk talk us through what your plan is so we're going to watch Cobra Kai. Fantastic. So why, why did you choose this as your as your tea? And this is interesting. This is because we should just probably clarify our, our Archive Corner process. It's, it's anything before 2020. It is. So Archive Corner can be 2019. It can also be 1950. It can. It can be anything from any decade. It can so, be. This is television. Yeah, this is exactly. So talk, <laughs> talk us through why, briefly why you've chosen it for next week and what you're expecting. Well, I think I think you need to really get, get with the program yep. in terms of the Karate Kid fandom. Yep. And in terms of so that's one that's one that's one area of eighties fandom I'm not a part of. No, I, I've, I I've never been a part of the, the Karate Kid fandom. You, you got to get on board. Man. So do I need to watch the Karate Kid? I to, think you. I think is, you it too, is it too late to watch the no, Karate no, Kid? No, no, I think uh, you got to get on board. I'm not sure if you, you remember Drew when I got into Jagged Little Pill Alanis Morissette <laughs> in 2005. And I, 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 I think like, it's the, time. The moment's passed to get uh, into it. No, I think it's time. I think it's time you you went through your Ralph Macchio phase. And... Maybe I should watch Cobra Kai without watching the Karate Kid. Will that give me a fresh perspective? <laughs> it will give you an unconventional perspective. Maybe I'll do that. I feel like <laughs> there might be there might be some massive gaps in your in your prior knowledge, but it could give me fresh critical distance as well. <laughs> they they could, and I think I think you really need to get on board with the the sports drama. 
Well, I like certain kinds of sports dramas. I love my football dramas. <laughs> I love my American sports dramas. But yeah, the martial arts I film and series to martial arts. is a little bit of a blind yeah. spot. Okay, awesome. Well, let's, and I, I like the idea of doing an archive choice that's recent as well because mm. it's interesting to see what's happened in the last couple of years. It's too. big. It's number one. Netflix is topical again. Okay, so let's do it. Cobra Kai next week for Pilot Club. See you in the dojo. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>